What is every organization's, every team's most valuable asset are the relationships between your people. And if as a leader, you can listen more and talk less, get off your own agenda, get off your own timeline, get off your own narrative and truly genuinely convince your people that you care for them and love them and slow down and move from an efficiency, highly productive, get it done mindset, which is tough in this ever demanding world and move to an effectiveness mindset. You will transform your culture and your people will stay and bring their best. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement, and leadership strategies that will help you unlock the hidden potential within your business. By listening to this podcast, we hope to empower you and your workforce towards achieving significant HR organizational success. I'm really excited today to be joined on the HR L&D podcast sofa by Scott Jeffrey Miller. Scott serves as Franklin Covey's Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership. He is the host of On Leadership with Scott Miller, a weekly leadership webcast, podcast and newsletter that features interviews with renowned business titans, authors and experts. And Scott is also the author of a weekly leadership column for Inc.com and he's a regular contributor to Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global and the American City Business Journal. Now, Scott is also the best-selling author of Franklin Covey's Management Mess to Leadership Success. Now, this includes 30 challenges to becoming the leader that you would want to follow. And that's really the focus of this podcast. I get an opportunity to really delve deeper into the book with Scott today. I ask him about what those 30 challenges involve, what his views are on leadership, and also, of course, what he believes makes the best leader. But most importantly as well, understanding that with Management Mess, not all of us start out as great leaders. All of us have areas that we can develop our own learning. I'm hoping to really bring those uh, aspects to, to, to Scott's teachings to life during the course of this podcast. Now, if you're not familiar with Scott, he began his professional career in 1992 with a Disney development company as a founding member of the development team that designed the town of Celebration in Florida. Scott now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, with his wife and three young children, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome him to the podcast today so he can talk to you all about his many, many years of experience in being right at the top of the game when it comes to leadership coaching. Enjoy. Welcome, Scott Miller, to the HR L&D podcast. Understanding where we are to know where we are going. Obviously, you started your career at the Disney Development Company in 92, but I'd be really keen to know, and I'm sure they would be too, um, to discover more about the choices you made that I guess have ultimately led you to becoming both a best-selling author, obviously on the subject of thought leadership, which we're going to find out a lot more about today, but also that led you to becoming Executive Vice President of the world-leading consultancy and training firm, Franklin Covey. Well, thanks. I think my choices, at least professionally, have been quite deliberate. My, my personal life, they might have been more haphazard. But professionally, I always was a fairly good linear thinker. I knew that I wanted to probably be in the C-suite at some point. I wasn't sure that was the CEO or the CMO. I'm quite sure it was never the CFO, but I, I knew that I needed to probably have some sales experience, some sales leadership experience. I needed to have some supply chain marketing international. So I was quite deliberate on planning my 
my career in about three to five year tranches. So I spent four years with the, the Disney company, which is an amazing adventure. I'm actually from Orlando, Florida. And then um, when I left Disney, I was recruited by what is now the Franklin Covey Company, moved out to Utah, which was a massive cultural shift, right, for a single Catholic boy living in Orlando, moving out to Utah, which is, you know, as many of your listeners know, was, you know, a very heavily dominated Mormon estate. It was a wonderful journey out here and joined the Franklin Covey Company, moved up pretty rapidly in the organization from sales to sales leader to general manager to vice president to executive vice president and chief marketing officer, which is a role that I held for eight years. And then about a year and a half ago, stepped aside from that day-to-day operational function and became the executive vice president of thought leadership, where my job now is to speak and write and, 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 and hopefully join podcasts like your own. And about a year and a half ago, I decided that of all the great leadership books that had been written, including those published by Franklin Covey, I thought there was something missing, which was a very practical, relatable book where a leader like myself, who had had a fairly illustrious career, could be quite vulnerable, confident enough to actually share a lot of my own messes. So I wrote this book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader, you would follow. And I I carefully curated with some colleagues 30 challenges that every leader faces, both professionally and personally. And I tended then to write a horror story about how I had, you know, usually violently violated that principle and had struggled with that challenge because I'm not sure I was ever naturally meant to lead people. But I'm not sure most people are meant to be leaders of people. So I share in this book a lot of challenges, and I think it was very um, very helpful, not just for me to get them out as therapy, but also for people who, like me, tend to have a two-steps-forward, one-step-back kind of career and don't really know if they should also be leaders of people. And it's done extremely well, debuted at number one on the, on the Amazon list for six weeks in a row, and has now sold close to 30,000 copies. So I've been quite delighted at the reception it's gotten from people like me that find themselves in a lot of leadership management messes. Fantastic. Well, what a, what a, what a great story. Congratulations on the, on the sales and Amazon as well. I mean, it's one of the main reasons I was delighted that you accepted my invite, Scott, because um, you know, not only have I got you on the podcast now, but I'm also a huge fan of your views on leadership. I personally already own the book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, which is a book that details the seven habits that you attribute to highly effective people. Um, so, Obviously, this is your, your next book, if you like. That was, that was co-written, the first one. So as an experienced leadership professional, as you clearly are, I would love to know what it was that really motivated you or inspired you to write Management Mess. You know, I think it was because so many leadership books are aspirational, written by academics or, you know, CEOs that are, you know, very smart and accomplished, but they're very disconnected from the way most people live and work and operate. So I really wanted to take these 30 challenges that everybody faces and break them down into kind of real life stories. I have found, Nick, that that the more vulnerable I am, the more confident I am in my skills, but the more vulnerable I am in my um, in my own challenges, the more my message resonates. So I took quite quite a lot of pride in sharing a lot of my horror stories. You know, nothing nothing illegal, immoral, or unethical, sometimes close, quite frankly. But um, I just really felt like if I could, as a executive officer in a world-renowned leadership development firm, 
really be relatable and talk about how hard it's been for me that I could impact, I hope, millions of lives from the podcast and keynotes and in the books that I'm giving. In fact, the book has done so well that the publisher has ordered a seven-volume series in the domestic success genre. So right now I'm writing mark, marketing mess to brand success. I'm going to be then writing job mess to career success, communication mess to influence success, parenting mess to launch success. So in the next five years, I'm going to have six or seven books in this whole genre because I really think, I think most of us learn more from our messes than we do from our successes. And there's great power and currency in that. No, I totally agree. Congratulations again. That sounds like a really exciting series. You're going to be incredibly busy. So, I mean, as an experienced leadership professional, I would love to know then, you know, is it is it your experiences in leadership that, 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 that this book is based on? Or is it more about the experiences then from the leaders that you've coached? Because obviously you just mentioned there that, you, you know, you teach better when it's something that directly happened to you. But obviously you've, you've coached loads of leaders as well. So are some of those stories involved in this book? Yeah, the, the the book has these 30 chapters, and Nick, I wrote the book to be very short, right? This is not war and peace or good to great. It's a very practical, relatable, short leadership book. Each chapter is about maybe three, maximum four pages long, and each one generally has a horror story that comes from my own experience, or perhaps I've disguised the person where I saw somebody else have a major management mess. So it's probably about 60% my own messes about 20% my own successes, and about 20% other people's messes or successes. Either way, the stories are meant to really bring these challenges or principles to light in a very tangible way. Say this, don't say that. Do this, don't do that. I hope that through my and other people's stories, and I've, you know, I've masqueraded them to keep people's you know, identities uh, you know, sacred if needed, I really thought that I could short circuit other people's leadership journeys by just sharing some of the things that I fell into that no doubt the reader is going to face or has faced as well. And all of it is based on Franklin Covey's content. The stories are, my, are unique to me generally, but it's all grounded in the principles taught by the Franklin Covey company. Fantastic. Now, here on the HILND podcast, for those regular listeners that are with me, you'll all know that I'm really keen on helping my listeners to become better leaders. So, you know, again, perfect guest for me today and having you on board, Scott Miller. But I personally don't think there's enough leadership training taking place within organisations, which often means that leaders are often found to be the scapegoats for commercial problems. So this is, do you think this is really rooted in the fact that there isn't enough training given to those leaders in the first place? And, and on your view or in your view, who do you think should be reading this book? Nick, you've hit it right on. You know, the Harvard Business Review published a statistic recently that said that the average age that someone is promoted into their first management position is age 30, but that the average age they receive their first formal leadership training isn't until 42. So there is a 12-year gap where, you know, well-intended, but quite frankly, probably wrecks of leaders are doing great damage inside organizations, kind of wandering aimlessly, like, well, what do I do? Kind of making it up going along. And I think their story is very similar to mine. So let, let's take my story. I was a very successful sales producer inside of Franklin Covey. Naturally, like many sales producers or individual producers, I was approached about becoming a sales leader. Because most of our leadership positions are filled by highly competent individual producers, right? The most creative digital designer, 
or the top producing salesperson, when rarely are the talents, the competencies, the characteristics that make you a great digital designer, do they make you the great leader of the digital team? In fact, they're often inverse, inversely correlated, right? Rarely are the skills that make you the great salesperson make you a great sales leader. They're often the opposite. So I think like me, I was promoted under the false perception that I was supposed to then turn everybody else into me because I was the top salesperson. They want everyone to be like me. Well, that's insane. They wanted everyone else to get the same results that I was getting. But as their leader, my job was to actually you know, build capacity and deliver results with and through other people, not save the day, not try to turn them into clones of me. I, I went on a tirade you know, trying to turn people into my, 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 um, my clone. So I think that one of the key learnings that I've learned, Nick, is when someone is being recruited to become a leader, sit them down and say, Scott, man, you're a great salesperson. You've hit 16 quarters for quarters on your quota and your sales goal. Let's inventory all the things that you do well in your sales role. All eight things, all 12 things, all 15 things. Now, Scott, of these 15 strengths you have, six of these are not going to help you become a sales leader. You've got to check your ego. You've got to step out of the limelight. You've got to be a better coach versus a better teller. You've got to be comfortable with other people earning more money than you, whatever they are. If someone had sat me down and said, Scott, stop doing these four or five things, and here are five or six or seven new competencies that you're going to need to learn, not overnight, but over time to become an effective leader, I would have been a better leader. No one told me that. Or if they did, I was too arrogant or too young or not self-aware enough to actually listen. But I think that subtle difference is when you are considering promoting somebody into a leadership role, talk about the good as well as the bad, because most people take these roles because they're lured into wanting to earn more money, be more influential. God forbid, if you don't become the leader, you know, Tom down the hall, who you can't stand, will become your boss next week. I think people take the roles for the wrong reasons, and they need to understand that leadership can be unrelenting and unrewarding in the short term and very validating, exceptionally rewarding sometimes in the long term, but it doesn't happen overnight, and it usually requires a whole new set of skills. It, it gave me a bit of an analogy we've got. I mean, obviously in the UK, we're mad on our, on our soccer, as you'd call it, or football over here. And there's a lot of um, professional footballers that go into management and really make a pig's ear of it. That they're not, they don't, just because they've been good at football, it doesn't make them good managers. And I think that's, a, a, I guess, a more public example of what you're saying. But you're absolutely right. Just because you're a good digital designer doesn't mean you're going to be a good digital design manager. And I, we see this all the time in business. And I think, I think you've, you've, what you've said there makes absolute sense to me. Um, and obviously that resonates with what you've got in the book, because I know that the book requires a lot of active participation from the reader. So obviously you've got the subtitle there, which is, is through sort of 30 different challenges, which is obviously one of the things that really helps set it apart from some of the other leadership books that I've seen. Um, and obviously you, you very kindly sent me a copy of your book. So I've had a good look through it as well. I've seen some of the challenges. And I think that because you've embedded those challenges and the principles within the, within the book itself, it really helps the, I guess, the readers learning as they go through it. So 
What was the intention and what do you think sets Management Mess to leadership success apart from other leadership management books? And, and is it these challenges that really makes the difference? I think, it's, I think it's two things, right? Obviously, it's the power of Franklin Covey's content. I, I curated these 30 challenges that are drawn from some of our best-selling solutions, right? The seven habits of highly effective people, the four disciplines of execution, the four essential roles of leadership. We're big on numbers at Franklin Covey. So I was privileged enough to have access to our company's intellectual property. And then what I think made it different was my unique voice. Was, was really being just completely vulnerable, opening the you know, proverbial kimono and saying, these are things that I did that were kind of horrifying. And I wasn't trying to license bad behavior. I wasn't trying to validate people's messes by having them you know, wallow in them. I just said, you know what? If you want to become a great leader, you're going to be faced with all kinds of challenges. You're going to make mistakes. So I'm going to tell you all of mine, not gratuitously, but vulnerably, authentically, with plain language, sometimes in hilarious, mortifying stories. Some are very simple, just, you know, here's what I thought, here's what I said, I regret it, learn from this. I think it's very practical. It's funny. It's kind of laugh out loud funny. But I also wrote it in a way that's not this, you know, 300-page leadership tome. I mean, Nick, as you know, in the publishing industry, your publisher usually tells you, I want 60,000 words from you. That's kind of the average length, you know, 280 pages, something like that, which is why the last half of most business books suck. And no one ever reads them because the author usually has about 40,000 words in them. So I just wrote a book and stopped when I was done. And I didn't fill it with a bunch of fluff on the last half. And I honestly, I think the reason it's done so well is because I was privileged enough to draw upon the Franklin Covey content I had 30 years of tons of mistakes and the willingness to share them. And I wrote them in a way that is easy to read, short, practical, and doesn't, you know, doesn't drone on for 50 pages. The, the chapters are short. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm not going to win a Pulitzer for this book, but nor did I set out to do that. I wanted the book to be read by leaders or people considering to be leaders of people and have them really benefit from it. And I think it struck a chord. Any example stories you can, you know, sh short example stories you could share with us today? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, a ton. I mean, um, one of the things that I really struggle with is that a leadership competency that is underrated and un under implemented is listening. The third challenge is listen first. And this is counterintuitive to most people. And I talk a lot, a lot in the book around how if you're like me, I have become a fairly adept speaker, right? I, I have a big vocabulary. I'm trained to speak on stage and body language and hand gestures and eye contact and repeat the message, repeat the goals, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And what gets lost in that is when you are talking all the time, you can't be empathetic. You can't be naturally curious. You can't connect with your team members. You don't understand what their struggles are. And, and as a competent communicator, I've been taught to be a very effective questioner, you know, metaphorically, Nick, peel the onion, get to the root cause. And there's a place for that in business, right? Asking effective questions has a place in business. But when it comes to relationships with people, when we're asking questions, we're, we're usually on our own timeline, our own narrative, our own agenda, and that it's it, to, to listen is selfless. To be talking is generally quite selfish. So I share some stories around how to not interrupt, 
how to step off your own agenda, how to genuinely reinvest in people by listening more and connecting with people because people don't quit leaders who they think love them. And I use that term very genuinely. If someone believes that their leader is invested in their welfare, that has their best interests at heart, that is willing to move outside of their comfort zone and to give them courageous feedback on their blind spots and to courageously, diplomatically, with consideration, talk about what their, what their challenges are, people don't quit that kind of leader, right? People quit their jobs. Sorry, people don't quit their jobs. They quit leaders who are tyrannical, who are efficient and not effective. I think the most powerful thing I've ever heard from Dr. Covey is with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. And I share some stories around how I have what Dr. Covey calls a very efficient mindset. And that's good for some email and texting and some processes and even some meetings. But in a culture where the relationships between your people are your most valuable asset, you've got to slow down and move off of an efficiency mindset into an effectiveness mindset and to slow down with people because an organization's most valuable asset is not your processes, your board of directors, your patents, all that can be copied and stolen. It's also not your people. What is every organization's, every team's most valuable asset are the relationships between your people. And if as a leader, you can listen more and talk less, get off your own agenda, get off your own timeline, get off your own narrative and truly, genuinely convince your people that you care for them and love them and slow down and move from an efficiency, highly productive, get it done mindset, which is tough in this ever demanding world and move to an effectiveness mindset, you will transform your culture and your people will stay and bring their best. Fantastic. And this is something that in practical terms is very close to my heart, Scott, because I'm a recruiter. So I see every single day candidates across the globe who typically want to change roles, as you say, because they're not happy with whoever it is that manages them. Um, they don't like the way they're managed or they don't like the way the culture is changing. Uh, perhaps they have been denied a promotion or haven't been listened to. But, you know, we see it all the time. The statistics support it, that the biggest reason that people want to change job isn't usually because of money. Um, it isn't usually because of anything but the leadership that's in, that's in front of them or, or they feel like they've been poorly managed. So I think, you know, you've hit that wall on the nail for me as a recruiter as well, because we see that every single day. So look, before we find out a little bit more about you, Scott, I have to ask, and I appreciate for someone with your experience, this is not a small question, but if you're able to surmise, what does leadership mean to you? I think leadership is a balance of confidence and vulnerability. You know, there is, you know, there are thousands of books written about leadership Dr. Covey defined it as leadership is communicating to people their worth and potential so clearly that they come to believe it in themselves. And that's his definition. I think it is profound. I think as I've been asked this question, I think, you know, there's, um, there's a misnomer about humble leaders and humility. And I used to think, Nick, that humble leaders were quiet, shy, weak, retiring leaders. I, I liked loud, charismatic forceful, inspiring leaders. 
And I've learned that humility is actually born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble people. It is arrogant people that are incapable of being humble. So what I have learned on my own journey is that, and I quote my dear friend Liz Wiseman, who wrote the book Multipliers. I think it is a profound and prophetic leadership book, Multipliers. And Liz talked about in her book that as a leader, your job is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. Don't be the smartest person in the room. It's tempting, right? Because, you know, you're trying to manage your own career. You're trying to be, you know, the smartest, um, the best, the most educated, when in fact, that's not what the company needs from you. The pump company needs from you as a leader to recruit and retain the finest talent possible, including if they're smarter than you are. So as a leader, to define leadership, I would say it is not to be the smartest person in the room. It is to be the, the, the kind of the chef of culture. Your job is to create a culture through your own behaviors, an atmosphere where people not only want to work, but they want to stay, where they say no to the recruiter across the road for the free soda machine or the 1% more in commission or the two pounds more or $2 more an hour. People don't quit cultures. They quit bad bosses and bad jobs. They also quit bad cultures, but people will stay in a culture where they trust their leader, where they can be themselves, where they can make mistakes, admit to them freely, where they have some license to take appropriate risks. And, you know, to quote Dr. Covey, common knowledge isn't common practice. These are all hypothetical, you know, phrases on this webcast. But if someone reads this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, and you just read it one day for 30 days or once a week for 30 weeks and practice each one of these challenges, you will become a palpably more effective leader in 30 days or in 30 weeks, whichever you choose. Excellent. I have to say, I'm, again, you know, I'm doing some study at the moment in professional consulting and it, you know, one of the things that's come through from that and also from my own experience is when you can align mission statements and mission values with leadership behaviors and leadership values, that's when you kind of have the utopia, right? And if you can get everything aligned together and everyone inspired in the same common vision, then you you can really make, you know, make, make positive change happen. Um, so I totally agree and always try and recruit someone better than yourself, right? That's that's something that we, we try and preach every day in what we do here at JJHR Recruitment. So, you know, you should never be fearful of having someone in who can do a better job because that's what allows growth to happen. So fantastic uh, summary there, Scott. Thank you ever so much. Well, listen, we're going to find out a little bit more about you. Time to find out more about you. Uh, how do you relax in your in your downtime? You know, I'm not sure there's a lot of relaxing or downtown going on in my life. Nick, I've got three young boys, five, seven, and nine. So my first and primary role in life is as dad. My second role in life is as husband. My third role is writing, speaking, authoring, and that kind of stuff. So there are seasons in our life where we have, you know, intense times and relaxation time. My 30s were my downtime. I didn't get married till I was 41. So I had a lot of relaxation and downtime in my 30s. But right now I'm kind of in a season of focusing on my my uh, my purpose in life, which is dad and spouse and writer and um, speaker. So I'll be honest, uh, not a lot of relaxation going on. 
No, it sounds like it. When you've got eight more books to go as well. Well, listen, I, I guess something that might be quite useful for you right now is if you had a superpower, because without the stuff you've got on your plate, it's something that would probably come in handy. So if you could be given any superpower, what would it be and why? Goodness, I did not see that coming. Um, I think it would be uh, empathy. I think uh, I'm not a naturally... Um, empathetic person. I'm not a robot. I'm not cold. I'm not a left brainer only. But I do think uh, the more you can relate and see the world through other people's eyes and lives, the less conflict there is, the more humanity, the, the, the vitriol in American politics, none of it's rooted in empathy. What's going on in the EU? I mean, just around the world, right? So I think if I, my superpower could be unmitigated empathy, I think I would be more influential and a better friend, family member, and leader to people. Love that. Perfect. So last question before we dive back into the book and some of your leadership principles is, who are the two people who have been most influen influential to you in your career? Yeah, first is Chuck Farnsworth. He's the vice president at Franklin Covey who recruited me from the Disney company. He brought me in and absolutely had a vision for my career. He saw my strengths. He saw my weaknesses. And he really gave me permission to focus more on my strengths and kind of run with my passions. He also taught me this concept of, of creating a pre-forgiveness environment where, Scott, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have issues. You're pre-forgiven. Do not live in paranoia or fear. So he taught me a tremendous amount. The second would be the co-founder of our company, Hiram Smith. You know, Dr. Covey gets most of the fame and credit. It was Hiram Smith who invented the Franklin Planner and the Franklin planning process. And he had a profound impact on me in the following way. You know, Dr. Covey popularized this notion of a personal mission statement. And believe it or not, the personal mission statement is the most trafficked website of all of Franklin Covey's web properties. But it never worked for me because, you know, I was, like I said, single till I was 41. If you would have asked me in my 30s, what was my mission? I would have said, I have no idea. I don't know. Drink more champagne? Go to Italy more? I have no idea what my mission is. I'm single. I have no idea. Um, but it was Hiram Smith that taught me the power of understanding your values. And I, gave, I heard Hiram give a speech once where he talked about his values and he named them out. And I went home, Nick, and I spent literally several weeks kind of working through a bunch of different adjectives. You know, what do I really value in life? And I finally wrote them down and I formed an acronym, PhilPal, P-H-I-L-P-A-L, PhilPal, Purpose, Health, Integrity, Loyalty, Positivity, Abundance, and Learning. And I wrote down my values because of Hiram Smith. And to this day, gosh, 18 years later, I can in any conversation tell you what my values are, why they are. And by knowing my values, when I'm at conflict with somebody else, I'll realize, oh, now I know why I'm upset with you because loyalty isn't one of your values. You're not being loyal to, to, loyal to me. But that's okay because I can't put my values on top of you. So when I got very clear on what my values were, memorized them, rank ordered them, first one you know, is purpose, it really gave me a, a better sense of kind of understanding who I am and why I'm here and living congruent. So I really attribute that to Hiram Smith, the co-founder of the Franklin Covey Company. 
Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Shaping the future of human resources together. Final questions. I really enjoyed the chapter on celebrating wins. So I wondered if you could retell the story, but also let the listeners know why you feel celebrating individual and team accomplishments is, is just so important. You know, I think there's this natural tendency, and maybe it's in the Western Hemisphere, Nick, but I'll bet you there's some of it in in Europe and the UK as well, and certainly in Asia, which is that in organizations, we tend to take ourselves very seriously. We don't laugh enough. We sure as heck don't have fun. We're there to do a job, kind of get in, get out. I think that is bunk. I think that that, that talented, hardworking, educated people can still have fun and laugh. I don't think we celebrate enough. I think too often we're on to the next task as leaders in this insanely busy world. We're just on to the next project. It is so important to set goals that are achievable. They can be stretch goals, but they can't be such a stretch that if you were to achieve them, if you were to win, you in fact fail because it was set too low. I think that methodology permeates too many CEOs that we've got to set goals that are so astronomically difficult to get to, because if you were to accomplish them, if you win, in fact, you lose. I think that pervades the C-suite too frequently. I think stretch goals are important, but people have to feel a sense that they're winning. And when they win, we need to celebrate with as much fanfare and time and attention and budget and energy as what it took to accomplish the goal. No one wants to work for a culture where they always feel like they're, win- like they're losing, or if they won, nobody notices. So I share a couple of stories in the book, mainly about, I think the story you're mentioning is about the confetti shooting. You know, on several, by, by the way, I have never met a confetti cannon I don't love. I like to shoot confetti, but I like to shoot it with a reason. So whenever I shoot confetti, I make sure, and you can count confetti because they know the pieces by the pound or by the, um, the ounce or liter, however it's measured. And that is when I'm shooting confetti, I correlate it to some goal. You know, if there are 28 million prospects in the company's database now, I will shoot out 28 million pieces of confetti. If the 36,000th person has downloaded the webcast, I'll shoot out 36,000 pieces of confetti, which by the way, isn't very much. So I like to shoot confetti out in correlation with some measurable accomplishment or goal and let people like just like illustrate it. I sent, I, I shot out, you know, tens of millions of pieces of confetti in correlation with what I just said was number of prospects in a database. So people actually could see, you know, it's one thing to say this many people at Mecca or this many people sitting in the Coliseum or this, you know, this is the same number of people that live in Germany. It's one thing to see a number on a PowerPoint slide. It's another to look at, look at 37 million little pieces of confetti 
all fluttering around a room and then taking a few and putting it into your wallet or your coin purse or in your desk. And every time you open that up, you see that confetti there and you remember what happened at that event. So, you know what? Not every celebration requires confetti. And I think you could, you could probably celebrate on things that are nominal, right? Don't celebrate people coming to work on time or don't celebrate, you know, somebody just achieving a report. Make sure you calibrate it with the gravitas, but, but ask yourself, do you as a leader feel comfortable moving outside what might not be your comfort zone and hamming it up? You know, put on the funny hat, put on the funny costume, shoot some confetti, take everybody to lunch, celebrate what's important. And while you're at it, Nick, reward what you want to get done. Because I think too often we celebrate the wrong thing in companies. We celebrate the, the person who drove through the night across 12 hours to race the materials to the client and save the day versus celebrating the person over in operations that for 30 days in a row has on-time deliveries, right? So be sure you're not always celebrating the urgency-addicted firefighter. Make sure you're celebrating the person or the process that you want reinforced in the company. Sometimes you can celebrate and celebrate the wrong thing because what you get, what gets acknowledged, what gets rewarded, gets repeated and done. No, that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. I think that leads us nicely as well into the more of the principles of the nitty gritty of the book, because um, I'll, I'll make obviously lots of highlights in the episode notes in relation to this chapter as well on celebrating wins, because it's a good one. But from the nitty gritty side of the book, so our listeners can really get a feel for what management mess is all about. What are the principles? What are the practices and the 30 leadership challenges in the book? Uh, what are they really based on? And more importantly, can they help readers become better leaders? And I think I know the answer to this because you've kind of led yourself towards this route already. But, you know, if, if I'm listening to this now, and I'm thinking, okay, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to have an action and that action is to go and purchase your book and undertake your 30 leadership challenges in 30 days or 30 weeks. You know, what are the kind of princ principles and practices they're going to be faced with? So they're organized into 30 tranches, Nick. The, the first eight or so are all congealed around leading yourself. The next 12 all kind of form around leading others, and the last 10 or so are about getting results. Now, that formula is more just a structure for the book. They don't, they don't hard, fast align to those. Generally, they do. Don't, don't get hooked up on that. But, you know, the first ones really align to uh, demonstrating humility, listening first, taking time for relationships. You know, uh, they're all around really leading yourself. The next dozen or so are organized into uh, leading others. You know, these are about developing relationships, um, really being better communicators, uh, seeking to really understand. These are about, you know, just really working well with others, talking straight, leading difficult conversations, showing loyalty. I call it make it safe to tell the truth. You know, you have to give, create an environment where people can actually accept and give you feedback writing wrongs and coaching. And then the last, you know, 10 or so are kind of more of an organizational bent, um, identifying the wildly important goals, ensuring that your systems align and support your mission, celebrating wins, making high value decisions and not being kind of a ping pong kind of leader that you know, gets distracted easily. So they're very practical. I absolutely am convinced that if someone reads the book, now, you can read it in one setting, probably three hours from a flight to London, to, you know, Frankfurt or something. Um, 
But I think the better way to read the book is probably, like I said, a chapter a day. At the end of each chapter, I list four or five key takeaways. Some, some of them are activities. Some of them are thoughts. Some of them are meetings to kind of ponder about. But the, none of these are sort of aspirational. They're very relatable. They're also relatable to people who are informal leadership roles. Not everybody listening today is a leader of people. Or you might be in your home as a parent or a spouse, not in your organization. These principles and practices, as you say, are ubiquitously replicable in our personal lives as they are in our professional lives as formal leaders of people. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, last question before we enter the vault, Scott, and that is, you know, the book is called Management Mess to Leadership Success. So with that in mind, do you think that all leaders in some way are in some kind of, of, of management mess? Absolutely. Everybody's got a management mess. And if you don't know it, your people do because everybody's talking about it. Your partners, your investors, your clients, the receptionist, the people who work for you, they're absolutely talking about your mess. So why not just own it? Own your mess because as the leader, when you own your mess, when you open up and you're secure enough to be vulnerable, call your team around and say, you know what I really realized? I'm so easily distracted. It comes from my creativity. It comes from you know my own impulsiveness. I know it. I know it can be a challenge. Let's talk about some things that I could do to keep me more focused. And there are, are there some things that each of you, as people who report to me, could make sure that you don't tempt me to get distracted. Now, the good news is when I am distracted, you know, it helps to create new ideas, but nobody here wants to be working on all 15 of my quote, brilliant ideas. I think when leaders can become self-aware, own their messes, talk about them freely, that creates an environment. It gives permission for everyone else to own theirs. Because if you're the leader and you're willing to talk about what your own messes are, there's some natural proclivity for others to be more comfortable talking about theirs and everybody's self-awareness will be raised. Now, Nick, you can take it too far, right? You can, this is not meant to me, meant to be that workplace is your confessional because sometimes if you confess your messes, there are people who will, you know, weaponize it against you and use it to try to bring you down. Those are sociopaths. Watch out for them. Expel them from the company as soon as possible. Nine out of 10 people will find great appreciation in your willingness to talk about your messes. And if they're not willing to talk about theirs, bring them up. Say, you know what? Let's have a mess of success meeting. I want everyone to share a mess that to date you've not acknowledged verbally, but that if you were, it would kind of clear the air on the team and provide other people a realization that they could in fact compliment your mess with their success, and you might complement their mess with your success. That is a way to build a high trust, transparent, vulnerable, fast culture. Fantastic! Well, what a brilliant way! What a brilliant uh, way to finish the uh, the podcast about the book. I think that was a fantastic response. That if you haven't, or you've got the opportunity and sat back, I would recommend rewinding this section by about a, about a minute and listening to that all over again because there are a lot of lessons to learn in that. And I think it's it's great to hear from someone like yourself, Scott, that you know that we can be vulnerable as managers, and that's okay. Um, and actually, confronting that can can really build a lot more buy-in uh, from your team. 
um, and a lot more empathy, which you mentioned earlier as well, which I think is is definitely important uh, in, in any management role. So that's uh, that's Scott Miller. We're talking there about management mess to leadership success. Thirty challenges to become the leader you would follow, and there will be a link in the episode notes for those of you interested in purchasing the book and taking it forward and following some of those principles. We're very quickly going to jump into the L and D vaults. Opening the L and D vault. Quick short answers. In hindsight, what's one thing you now know that you wish you had known when you began your career? I would repeat the concept that with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. Almost everything in life is better off doing slow than fast. What's the one common myth you often hear in the workplace in relation to leadership and can you debunk it? I think it's the idea that the senior leaders build or destroy the culture. And there's some truth to that, but anybody can be a transition figure in your culture. If your culture is to gossip and backbite, stop doing it. I don't care if you're the receptionist or the, 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 the factory worker or the loading zone manager or the sales leader. Just refuse to participate. Decide that you're going to be a transition figure. And when you find someone else coming up to you and they're disparaging someone else, say to them, you know, I'm sure that isn't your intention, but I'll bet you Tina would have her feelings hurt if she heard you talking that way about her. So my advice to you is to share those thoughts with her directly. And if I had the same experience, I will do the same. You can take the high road without shaming someone. But the myth is, is that, the culture is only led by the leaders. There is some truth in that, but that isn't entirely true. Don't point the finger to other people and what they should be doing. Point it to yourself. And to quote Dr. Covey, be a model, not a critic. Be a light, not a judge. Love that. Last question. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone recently appointed to a leadership role who has no prior experience of leadership? Yeah, you got to you got to build a culture around you of your own board of directors. Go out into the organization, go into different organizations, take people to lunch, listen to them and ask them what were their mistakes? What are some of their key lessons? You cannot surround yourself with enough good advice. I think at some point you'll narrow down who are the confidants that really have the wisdom and the smarts. By the way, those are different. Not everyone that's smart is wise. But everybody who is wise is usually smart. So go find the wise people in the organization. Because most, if not all, senior leaders would love to give back and teach you some of their lessons. So surround yourself with people of high character, high competence, people who are better cultured, wiser, older, more seasoned. Ask them questions, listen to them, and then integrate what they've learned often the hard way into your life so you can do it the easier way. Brilliant way to close the HRND podcast today, Scott. Thank you ever so much for joining me today. For those listeners that are totally engaged, are keen to get a copy of your book, I will obviously put notes uh, in the episode note, uh, links in the episode notes to both your books, Management Mess, and of course, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, which I can also recommend because I have it myself and it's, it's a brilliant book. Are there any other links you'd like to mention here where listeners can connect with yourself, Scott? Useful links, keeping the HR L&D community connected. You know, thanks for asking. You can connect to me and follow me on LinkedIn. I'm on um, Instagram, pretty active on both of those sites. You also can follow me on Twitter or Facebook, but uh, LinkedIn and Instagram are probably the two ways that are best. Um, 
accessible. To connect with me, I write a weekly article in Inc. Magazine. I write an interview, a podcast every week with a blog. All those are posted on my LinkedIn feed. Excellent. I'll make sure all of those links are available in the episode notes. And of course, if you want to find out more about Franklin Covey as well, you can go to franklincovey.com. Of course, if you are an HR L&D professional listening to this podcast and you have an HR, HRIS or L&D related vacancy and you would love some specialist HR recruitment support with it, do give me a call. Do contact me 01727 800 or nick at jgarecruitment.com. That's all we've got time for today. So thanks ever so much for listening. Thank you so much, Scott Miller, for joining me today. It's been a fantastic podcast with some amazing insight on how to become a better leader. I highly recommend his books and just want to say a huge thank you for, for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the platform, Nick. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA HR Recruitment. If you need help with a current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.